oh my goodness, something's happened to me. And from now on, my life is going to change and I'm not even going to be the one changing it. It's, it's he's, his, he's, he's working in me in such a way that I'm actually becoming a new person. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. J.D. saw you took the whole clan out for the first time. How'd that go in the restaurant with all, all <laughs> seven of you? We made it. It was great. And it was actually super sweet because some um, unknown woman, unknown to us, um, she's known to someone, uh, came up <laughs> afterwards and said that we, she was amazed at how well behaved our children were, which was kind of a shock because I guess from internally, it didn't seem like it was right. exactly <laughs> It never case, does. I guess externally, <laughs> we were putting off the right vibe. So that's always, that's always encouraging to hear. But yeah, we made it out. Um, all seven of us. So Coke party of seven. It's a um, new, 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 new normal for us, but we're excited. So six, six weeks old, little boys. So, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Well, we thought we'd talk this week about good works. It is uh, New Year's resolution time and has an article out about New Year's resolutions. We mentioned jokingly last week that Matt Kennedy is virulently anti-New Year's resolution. So we thought we'd continue that conversation a little bit. Talk about good works in the context of uh, two of our articles of religion here, the 39 articles, Article 12 of good works and Article 13 of works before justification, the idea that a non-Christian might do quote unquote good works. So why don't I just read article 12 and we'll start there and uh, we'll see how far we get. Article 12 of good works, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. What are the most common kinds of conversations you guys have around good works? I mean, for us, it tends to revolve around incredulity on the part of, usually, you know, we have our congregation is mixed between people who come from an evangelical background and people who come from, this is a heavily Roman Catholic area, so there's there's sometimes on the part of people an incredulity about the idea that works don't play any role um, in our being declared righteous before God, and that that seems to be a real uh, sticking point for some people. And you know, it's 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 the, the incredulity is well, you know, there's all these commands in the Bible. There's <laughs> God tells us to do all these things, and uh, and and even if I don't know all the Bible, I know you know there's certain things I shouldn't do, certain things I should do. Why should um, why shouldn't my good my good efforts at least play some kind of some kind of role? And underneath that, the assumption, of course, that um, that maybe maybe the assumption is too big of a word, but there's an oversight, I guess. Uh, and, or maybe an undersight. The people who wonder why our works don't play a role in our justification tend to be underseeing the sin that's involved in everything that we do before, of course, before justification, 
And then even after justification, I mean, uh, the, 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 the gods accepting our works after justification is just as much an act of grace as the, uh, the accepting of us as sinners. I mean, you, you, that he, that he lends his, that he cleanses our works and receives them as pleasing in his sight is an act of, of utter mercy, uh, because apart from him, apart from Christ, apart from that grace, our, our works done, especially if they're done with a sense that we're going to earn our way into his presence are acts of rebellion. And that's so hard for people. And I guess, I guess it gets into, into article 13 a little bit, but that's so hard for people to understand. I mean, just it, it naturally, I can understand why it is. I, you, the way we relate to each other as human beings has a lot to do with how, if you treat me good, I treat you good. Uh, you know, uh, we, 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 we recognize certain people as better than others because of their goodness and their relative righteousness compared to the other people. So, so it just makes sense, I guess, from a natural perspective to just kind of project all that onto God. So um, that's how I think that, that's where at least my congregation, the questions tend to revolve. It's no coincidence that in the Heidelberg disputation, Luther starts talking about the problem of good works. When he's writing to Christians, he doesn't see our fundamental problem as that we get hung up on the works that we do that are evil, that supposedly keep us from God. The problem for Christians is that we imagine that there's a category of works that we can do that will make us pleasing to God. And that's the real problem. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see that the the way that God sort of accepts the work of the people um, really didn't change from from the old to the New Testament in terms of of the disposition of the heart and the existence of faith and that which was given, um, you know, in the right spirit, uh, to, for lack of a better word, uh, was always the the measure of the acceptable work before God. You know, I mean, the the sacrifices of bulls and um, you know all the 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 work of of the flesh uh, was never considered uh, meritorious in and of itself. And so there's this there's this misunderstanding that when it's overlaid over the, the scriptures, it actually um, confuses the entire narrative from Genesis to Revelation. Because when we we begin to see Jesus and his unpacking of the the disposition of the heart, as he does in, in Matthew chapter five in particular, but not just there, but throughout his interactions with the Pharisees by saying that the the that which goes into you will come out of you. You, know, you can't cleanse yourself from the outside in. It begins to simply uh, double down on an aspect of of works before God that have always that has always been present, which is that 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 done in the right heart, in the right spirit, is what is acceptable. And in, in what Paul would call by faith. You know, this is it. The things done in faith are acceptable and pleasing to God because they're offered in the right spirit. And so I think that uh, the confusion, when, when we run into this confusion, we have um, really uncovered sort of in a diagnostic way, um, a, a deeper level of confusion about the entire relationship between God and man that is revealed in the scriptures, because it's not like there was ever a time when God was simply content with being served mechanistically. It was always the case that his people were cut in by the heart and served out of, um, out of a loving, faithful obedience, uh, which is a different work altogether than that which is done out of fear or subjugation. 
you know, I mean, like the, the, the real, one of the difficulties with, with having an understanding of God that is sort of a, a quid pro quo God is that ultimately we can just turn him into a vehicle of our own subjugation. You know, I mean, if, if you know that if you bring your, um, you know, grandmother, uh, well, if you get straight age, you're going to get a new car. You know, if you know that if you, if you do X, Y, Z enough, then you'll get the required response to your, to your service. Well, then that just turns God into your servant, not yeah, he works um, for you. <laughs> exactly. And so that's, that's actually, uh, I think it was Carl Hull maybe. And what did Luther understand by religion? He said something that stuck with me, um, which essentially was without the, without the robust exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which requires, you know, a full-throated confession of sin and um, inability for humans to justify themselves and the sufficiency of Christ's death alone, you know, all of that combined, without that um, ever present in the teaching and preaching of the church, well, then we always fall back into the sinful um, temptation of simply turning the object of our veneration into um, our own um, subject. And that's, and that's, I think we've seen that throughout the history of the church, and certainly up into this present day, is that when sin is not properly explicated, uh, i.e. not a function of what we do, but a function of who we are, well, then the we think that the answer to that sin is simply to stop what we're doing and do something different. And of course, we all need to be doing something better than we're doing now. There's no question about that. But the question remains as to whether those can be salvific or efficacious. And of course, Paul in Galatians 3 um, uh, end of two, excuse me, says, um, you know, if Christ, if righteousness could come through the law, well, then Christ died for nothing. I mean, if, if there was a way to get your works um, clean before God, well, then what was Jesus doing on the cross um, in our stead? And that's always the case. And we're grateful at the time of the Reformation, that was what was revealed uh, and came to a head, uh, you know, through Luther famously, but then it reiterated down through the other reformers, and um, we are, to the extent that we lose that emphasis, we're going to leave our people at the mercies of their own sinful proclivity to, again, turn God into a great dispenser of blessings at their, uh, at their behest. And that's, um, you know, that, that's something we should avoid. <laughs> yeah, but you hear it. It's the hear it with very faithful Christians who, who, who know the gospel. I, I find my own self falling into this you know you, something bad happens in preacher's life uh, someone dies or loses their job whatever and, and the the objection is well i've i've been praying every day i've been, I've been i've been going to church faithfully i've been you know i've been tithing i've been doing all this stuff how could god you know let this let this happen to me i've been playing my part why hasn't god been reciprocated in the right way and and given me the sure the, the good stuff and, that, and that's now again that's a i don't think i i i follow that you know i here i've been faithful preaching the gospel doing all this kind of stuff and then god lets this happen to me what's wrong with yep. him he's not he's not being fair he's not paying me back for all the good things i've done for him and, and, you, just, and you just have this <laughs> kind of what you wish for right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly so yeah but that's that's so that's so deep in our souls yes. that 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 transactional aspect of well ingratitude i mean it goes back yeah. to cain and abel i mean that's the whole you know i mean we have models of this um you know, all throughout scriptures the the depth of our corruption you know in our disease i mean the ingratitude because what what exactly the situation you're describing that reveals is precisely how disingenuous must men, much of our works this side of heaven actually are because you know as long as things are going well well then we can convince ourselves 
ourselves that we're doing this just out of the goodness and magnanimity of our own hearts, you know, before God. Like this is, you know, of course I'm I'm faithfully <laughs> attending church and praying all the time because, you know, when things are smoothing, uh, going smoothly. But when you do experience suffering and heartache, it brings into question immediately why you were doing these things. And often, sadly, at least initially on the road of discipleship and sanctification, it's a surprising, shocking reality to people to find out that they're not nearly as pious as they as they had thought they were, you know. And there's a function of age in this. I mean, I can look back at some of my journals when I was in, when I was 20, you know, and some of the prayers and some of the um, some of the thinly veiled contempt for you know for those people that I was praying for, uh, which I now uh, more resemble than than I, than I wish, at least from the interior of my heart. And um, and I think, you know, this goes back to the to the again to the work of uh, the church with the rightly administering um, word and sacrament is that we believe that people are are slain once again by the, the word and also raised to new life by faith. And if you haven't been if you're not in a church that's faithfully explicating the scriptures and preparing you for this and and putting you in a situation where by the power of the spirit, you can be you can be comforted and raised up in the middle of this suffering and inevitable disillusionment about your own piety, well, then you're going to um, end up being either, what, what does Luther say, presumptuous or despairing. You know, you're either going to be, it's continuing to be propped up in the fact that like, well, what you're doing is fine. And at least you're not as bad as those people. And so you're going to continue to sort of be propped up in this presumption that your works are efficacious, or you're going to be crushed because you're going to say, well, what's the good of trying at all? If everything I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm despairing now of my actual inability, whereas the life of faith, like Paul says in Romans 14, you know, that which comes from, which doesn't come from faith is sin, but that the life of faith allows for the the confession of weakness and vulnerability in the midst of suffering and also the confidence and the promise that he will hold you fast and continue to strengthen you despite the weakness of the arm of flesh and that's that's the work of the church um, not that we want you not, not that you just need to get better i mean i tell my congregation all the time it's like it, no one around here wants you to be worse than you are like that you know, it was like we all want you to be better people like particularly your neighbor which is usually your spouse or your children so let's get on that but let's not be confused about what the power of the holy spirit is in your life which is to bring faith to an unbelieving heart which will would position you in an entirely different way with respect to works than the world would otherwise know which is what we call the life of 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 christian and and that's again that's a radical thing to say and it's increased it's it was radical it has been radical in the church whenever it's been said but it actually does constitute the church where it is said and that's um that's our conviction i want to ask you guys about the third clause here of this article because we've been talking a lot i think rightfully so about the distinction between sin internal and sin as things that you do rather than a state in which you exist. And we have here sort of three clauses in the article, right? First, that your good works cannot put away your sins and cannot endure the severity of the judgment of God. But clause two, they are in fact pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ. And then three, this is where I think churches and individuals can get into trouble with each other. They do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith in so much that by them, a lively faith may be as evidently known 
as a tree discerned by the fruit. So now it seems like we've gone back to the outside at least a little bit. What do you guys make of this third clause? This is where the um, <clears throat> the fruit checkers uh, uh, hang their hats, stand <laughs> up and start their work, right? Because the assumption that a lot of people have about this, and it is a biblical principle. Jesus said this: you'll, you'll be able to know them by their fruit. The assumption, though, is is that we are we are experts at identifying what the fruit is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so so C.S. Lewis had a had a very interesting, I think, excellent point. He made it. I think it was in Mere Christianity, but but you know, everyone begins their Chris, Christian life in a different place. So the person who was raised by crack addict parents and has been a prostitute all of her life and becomes a Christian is going to have a very different way of, of expressing that in the first, especially the first few years than someone who was raised in you know, a very strict Southern Baptist home, but wasn't a Christian, becomes a Christian, never smoked a cigarette or had a touch of alcohol in his lips. That person, you know, to looking at those two people, uh, they're both in the same church. A third party might say, wow, well, that that convert that doesn't ever drink alcohol and dresses with a tie on at church every Sunday, that person is bearing fruit. Whereas the this other woman who you know still slips into drug use every once in a while and has a porn problem and and is uh, you know drinking, clearly she's not a Christian because she's not bearing she's not bearing that fruit. And what both what the third party misses is that from God's perspective, we don't know. I mean, uh, it may be that that person who's had such a rough upbringing has borne far more fruit than the other because she had so many, so many sins that were chaining her down and and and, just, and destroying her and and God's freed her in so many ways. You just don't see it because you don't know her. You don't know her situation. That's always the danger with fruit checking is you just you just don't know. What is the first fruit of, of, of justification? It's turning to and believing, or first fruit of regeneration. It's turning to and believing right. in Jesus. And, and so the basic fruit that you want to look for, and I would say first and foremost in yourself, is, is do I believe in Jesus? Uh, and if you believe in Jesus, you can know that's not a natural thing. Um, that's not something you, do, you just decided to do out of the goodness of your own heart. That's something that God has produced in you. And then beyond that, um, I would even be very careful assessing too much even of your own fruit because you don't even know half the time what god is producing i look back over the last 26 years of my christian life and the things that i thought were really super horrible things that 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 were just never going to be broken most of those have gone away but I, i i tend to think that the work that god does has done in my soul and in my heart and my mind that i didn't I don't even remember playing any part in <laughs> those are the things that, that I, 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 I think are um, the most amazing uh, fruits, you know, just things. I, I think I told you a story before and maybe uh, I, I know this is a, this is maybe not um, exactly on, on target to where I was going, but uh, the day of my conversion, the day of my conversion, I was, I was smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes, I've been smoking since I was like 12, um, secretly at first, but then totally out in the open. I was 24, 25 when I became a Christian and smoking like a chimney. And I tried everything to get rid of it. I tried hypnotism. I tried, you know, bare knuckling willpower. I tried the gradual approach. I tried the nicotine gum, uh, everything you could possibly do. The day of my conversion, suddenly I don't want to smoke anymore. And I woke up the next morning. I didn't want to smoke then. I mean, I said no, I had no desire for it. It was completely gone. 
Um, I don't think smoking is a terrible sin, by the way. I just, but this was to me, sure, an amazing sign. Oh my goodness, something's happened to me, and from now on, my life is going to change, and I'm not even the one being the one changing it. It's, it's he's got his, he's he's working in me in such a way that I'm actually becoming a new person, uh, mm. and I I have I it's I I'm not trying that much. I'm just <laughs> so that that I think is is the comfort of this kind of fruit bearing cups is it's God that bears the fruit. It's God that does the work in you that, that produces these things. And sometimes you don't even notice it, but you can be assured that he's doing it. If you believe in Jesus, you can be assured right now that he is producing fruit in you, even if you can't see it. So when article 12 says that this may be evidently known, who is it evident to? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it is evidently known. I mean, you, you, you I think when I said, when I say you don't even notice it sometimes, um, what I mean is because we tend to focus on those areas, at least maybe I do, maybe, maybe you don't, but we tend to focus on those areas of disobedience, those areas of, of faltering. I think the further you go in the Christian life, the more you recognize how far you away, are away from where you should be. But if, we, if, you, do, if you do take some time and, and think, okay, how was I 10 years ago? Yeah. What was, I, what was, I, what was my thought pattern 10 years ago? What was my relationship to the internet 10 years ago or my relationship to, uh, to alcohol or whatever it might be 10 years ago. And, and, and check it out. And I, you're going to see some change there and you can, you, and you know, cause scripture tells you that you can attribute that change to, um, to the work of God, to the work of the Lord. What you don't want to do, however, I mean, even then is you don't want to say, okay, this, uh, if I don't, if, if I personally can't see the evidence, I must not be saved because the first and foremost fruit again is trusting in jesus christ so do you trust in jesus christ that's the core question if that's a yes then you can just assume that even if you can't see it if it's not evident to you at that moment that you are bearing fruit Hmm. yeah i think i mean everything you're saying i agree with matt and it it did remind me of an anecdote i i I don't know where i heard it but it was describing the the sort of c.s lewis phenomenon that you were you were mentioning about the various um you know not being able to judge necessarily on the outside where people are in their sanctification and it reminded me when you talked about smoking because there was this anecdote that said you know two people coming back from a like a billy graham crusade you know one opens the window and throws a cigarette out and says freedom the other one picks a cigarette up and lights it and says freedom you know and all of a sudden it's like you know to two people having the same reaction to the newfound freedom in Christ, you know, could be someone's legal, you know, thought if they ever smoked a cigarette or first, you know, that they'd burn in hell forever, all of a sudden has the freedom of the, of the gospel. And the person who has been chained to this addiction is now freed. And so, you know, I think that's, that just reminded me of that anecdote, but I think, you know, beyond that, I have thought something in this whole conversation um, has over the past, I don't know, decade or so in my life been really, um, uh, has really been been a renewed has has renewed my appreciation for the need of a of a local church and a local church of a of a sort of manageable size for lack of a better word because when you think about truth and love that Jesus is talking about you know for those who are caught in sin who are perhaps not evincing the the good works of the spirit in their lives um it's very difficult to hear that from someone who's, at, you know, checking your fruit, as you say, um, who doesn't have a sense of genuine love and affection for you, you know, as someone, and, and I've seen this throughout the church is that, you know, you come to church like for a month, and then all of a sudden, you know, the people who are purporting to love you um, start, you know, questioning, you know, your dress, behavior, and attitudes and things. And you say, well, these people, you know, you don't know me, you know, you don't know what I've come from, you don't know, 
And even if they were right in their judgment, you know, even if it was obvious and clear, it's difficult to actually receive the truth in a, in a not a spirit of love. But on the flip side of that, having now walked with friends and, and well, my, my neighbor, Liza, my wife, you know, <laughs> people close to you for, for many years now, you begin to realize that that there is a way of actually being sort of convicted, you know, like Nathan and David, you know, there's, there's a way of being uh, brought up to your deficiencies and your needs in a loving way that actually cuts to the heart and want and makes you want to, to events more good works. You know, I say all the time that, that there's a, there's a genuine prayer of wanting more of this, of the, of the spirit more uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, more of that for the sake of your neighbor. And in most people's lives, that's, you know, at the very least your parents, if not your spouse, if not, then your children. You know, this is this is the prayer of a sort of a loving, particularly loving, faithful father is, you know, Lord, these are the works that I need to be deepened and grown in my life for the sake of those who you have given me responsibility for. And that's an altogether different way of uh, worrying about your fruit than hiding or just, you know, what do we say in the, in the morning prayer ex- exhortation, you know, that we don't hide or dissemble our sins, you know, uh, from each other, particularly when we're gathered here. I mean, it's like we, we don't need to be afraid, but in churches where there's a sense of anonymity or a lack of genuine, um, at least hopeful sort of intimacy amongst people. I mean, even one or two other men or women or families, uh, you know, it's really all we really need. Um, where that's lacking, well, then this fruit checking and this sort of um, kind of anonymous judging um, really does seem to to rise to the to the forefront. And so I just I can just confess in my own life, having seen that, you know, being afraid of people that I don't really know versus trusting people who do know me and they know me, um, you know, in ways that that are uh, much more intimate than I would have ever thought that I would have allowed for people to to have um, have access to that. And yet that's part of the Lord's mercy of bringing to light need and bringing healing and then ultimately uh, growth in the very fruit of the spirit that's promised. So, yeah, I'm with you, Matt. I think that, that, you know, again, this goes back to the teaching and preaching of the church is that when when the law is not fully articulated and allows people to sort of skate by with the idea that they're doing enough, well, then it doesn't actually bring about the depth of conviction, uh, conviction that's required for genuine repentance. But then, of course, if genuine repentance is there without the promised forgiveness and full absolution of God and Christ for sinners, well, then then you you've you've left people, you know, still in their sins. Right. And so if you have that's why I love the Anglican um liturgy at the very least like if you just read it um you know read it with once more with feeling you have got all the components of bringing people low and then raising them up again in christ um and that's something that uh can't be done enough or needs to be done more um and and you can tell when people are not catechized along these ways when they begin to talk about good works in a variety of ways that are not scriptural and that's what we're trying to correct well, having talked now about um, the role of good works in the life of the Christian, let's talk about good works, or at least, quote unquote, good works in the life of the non-Christian. Article 13 is called Of Works Before Justification, and it reads like this, works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God, 
For as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace, or, as the school authors say, deserve grace of congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. There's a lot of sort of old school language there about good works preparing somebody's heart to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. But the question I want to ask you guys is, what do we say to the oft brought up alleged rejoinder that non-Christians do good works too, and doesn't that bring your whole system crashing down? I mean, no, I mean, I would expect, I would expect to see the uh, the non-christian doing the things that the christian does in, to some extent uh, and then even to a greater extent because god has so that we don't destroy ourselves god has given um inscribed his law in the heart of every person be they christian or not and he's given us common grace so that we don't destroy ourselves I mean, the way the way to just see this pretty clearly is read read paul's indictment of the human race in Romans chapter three, verses uh, 10 through 20. And you read that, you think uh, poison of vipers under their lips, the, 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 no, no, no one is righteous, not even one, they've all turned away, they've all become worthless. And then I, you know, I've had people, I've gone through this, that text with, with uh, parishioners and, or in Bible studies and people say, no, no, that sounds really harsh. I mean, my neighbor's not so bad. I'm not. I'm not that horrible. I mean, look, come on. I mean, I know my uh, my my neighbor over here. He's not a Christian, but you know, the other day my trash can was in the street rolling around in the wind, and he brought in he brought the trash can in for me. That was a really nice thing for him to do. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't being an adder. He wasn't you know horrible like that. So um, and you can get your neighbor to shovel the snow out of your driveway like nine months of the year. Where you yeah like, right. That's, that's, that's really good. That's a really really nice thing to be able to do. So. <laughs> right, but 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 Paul's saying what we are, like what what we are in the, right. in, in our inner souls before regeneration, and so because that's true, the fact that we ha- we we that we can see our neighbors do things like that means that God is doing something to restrain the the depravity um, that we all have. Like if God took off the the ch- to remove the blocks and just let us give full reign, full vent to our fallen desire, we would there wouldn't be civilization would never have made it off the runway. I mean, after, after, after Adam and Eve, the, the, the fall, that's it. We would, I don't know, we wouldn't have made it past the first generation. So that that's the first thing you'd want to say, say, okay, well, there's a reason why you can notice that generally people can do good things. And that's not because of the people doing the good things because of God. Um, the, the, the second thing though, to, to, to notice is, is the, an analogy I use for this is, if I have a, a, a person who wants to be my friend, who wants who wants to come into my house and eat my lunch with me and, you know, just hang out with me, but he tells me, you know, Matt, I, I really want to be in your house. I like your food, um, but, you know, I just hate Ann, or I, I just hate your son. Your son, I wish you were dead. I despise him. So I want to be your friend, and I want to come over and eat, eat lunch with you, and I want to have the blessings of your house, but, you know, just make sure your son's not around because I hate him. <laughs> right. And then I say, well, well, no, you can't, you can't come to my house. And he says, well, I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll come over your lawn. <laughs> Think I, no, no, I don't care. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll put some, I'll give you a check. <laughs> well, well, no, you can't be my friend because you hate my son. 
So in fact, the mowing of my lawn and the giving of the check makes me even more angry that, <laughs> that you're trying to win. No, you either accept my son or you don't have me. That's no work you do will matter. I think that that's what happens is, is God has held up his son as the one whom he loves and who he wants us to love. And so apart from submission to and trust in and belief in his son, all of our works are just utterly reprehensible in his sight. They, they, they stink to him because, because they come out of our own pride and our own de de demands that God recognize us despite our hatred of, of his son. I think the Greek word is scubalon there. Which yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> been variously translated um, rubbish, among other things. But um, yeah, well, that's a, that's a, that would be a really difficult um, situation to navigate, Matt, but I think it's very descriptive. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, and I think that the idea of uh, common grace is certainly something we're very grateful for. I mean, like, you know, I always reference... Um, or, or reflect upon the fact that, you know, we don't hear about more um, sociopaths, more acts of random violence. Like we actually have, um, we can be grateful for wherever we see um, people showing genuine affection and we don't need to denigrate that. I mean, I think that's part of what has happened in theology is that people have had to make, um, have tried to apologize or somehow explain away the existence of genuinely good works for non-believers. It's like, we don't need to deny that. We just say that they're not salvific or efficacious or before God, like your point is, they're not, they're, they're offensive when done out of the wrong spirit before God, but before man, you know, quorum mundo, before, before the world, we are, um, we're grateful that anyone mows a lawn for their neighbor or, or in your case, uh, writes a check to come have lunch, you know, whatever the case may be. But I think this, so this is, you know, again, this gets back to the entire system of the Bible, is that if we think, if we have this understanding that God is bought off by works done in whatever heart from the outset, well, then we're going to get to the wrong place. You know, we're going to end up in the wrong, in the wrong understanding of him and ourselves um, in, uh, entirely. And so I think that's where it's, it's not just helpful, but necessary to reorient the entire conversation around righteousness and good works before God back to the scriptures, you know, in Adam, all have sinned and all fall and are cut off from right relationship with God. And through the second Adam in Christ, we're given the opportunity by faith to be reconciled. That's the only, the only quote unquote efficacious work that's necessary for to be rightly uh, ordered to God is faith in his son. And so whatever else flows from faith, um, whatever else good works flow um, from faith is pleasing in God's sight and therefore something to be celebrated in the church and in the, in the world. That which is done out of some other motivation that is still um, helpful um, to neighbor is not something we denigrate. We just simply point out that, like to your analogy, that's not actually before God something of, of merit or worth. And that's, um, you know, that's offensive to people who consider themselves good. It's offensive to people who consider themselves righteous in themselves 
But uh, for people slain by the power of the spirit and cut to the heart, it becomes the, like Paul says in Corinthians, you know, the, the, the foolishness that we preach actually becomes this power of our salvation. And so, um, you know, where you find people who are confessing their sins in the uh, promised hope of redemption in Christ alone, you have found a church, you know, you found people who are, who are aware of the tainted reality of their imperfect works before God, this side of heaven, and yet are confident that he will continue to display his power through them. And that's, that's the good work that we confess, that Christ has taken our sin and is our sufficient and sole justification. And, and I think anything that flows from that, as Paul says in Romans 14, is, is a faith and is, is efficacious and, and is a good work. So um, I do think it's an interesting, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's anachronistic, but I do think that we have in 39 articles and in, in the time of the Reformation, we do see um, the fault lines as clearly as they have ever been laid out because the height of the medieval Roman Catholic sort of soteriological system was so technically situated around this understanding of merit and work and absolution as a result of that and Christ merit and the treasury merit and all the various ways that the church and the priest could operate in that that we see in the 39 articles it's a clear divide between the what they had been that what they had received and what the Bible had corrected with respect to the Reformation and I think we have different fights today. They're not entirely different. I think that some of the, the heat of that is obviously dissipated a little bit, but I'm grateful for the 39 articles in particular because it continues to shine a light on this important distinction that we, if we lose, well, then we, we lose, um, well, we lose the whole gospel. And so I'm grateful for that. As we get close to our time for this week, I wanted to ask you guys about how this affects the homiletic. So at the end of the Eucharist service, when we're sending the congregation back out into the world, we pray that the Lord would lead us into all the good works which he has prepared for us to walk in. How is it that we as ministers and as preachers do ministry in such a way that can encourage people to good work without tricking them into thinking that they're earning their salvation? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that, um, of course, the freedom of the Christian. If you haven't read that, uh, if you're if you're part of our listening audience and you haven't read Martin Luther's "The Freedom of, a, of the Christian," you should read that because that that book, I think, or that pamphlet or whatever it was, that's very short. Um, yeah, very short. That work is so clear on the role of works with regard to your faith and justification, and uh, the, it's it's super helpful. So, but. To be short about it, I mean, you you have you have to you have to you have to relieve the conscience of of the fear of punishment before anyone can do anything that is is a free act of love toward God. It's basically what Luther's point is there. Is you, people need to grasp the fullness of the gospel. The God, the, the Christ, has so so worked in his life to undo. Uh, the burden of the law over you and then to take your sins away that that your standing before god has 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 so has nothing to do with your performance that sets the person free then to work as an act of love to do to to give himself or herself over to service not not because i'm afraid that the taskmaster is going to whip me if i don't and, and not because um, i'm hoping to earn some extra credit 
um, but because just purely out of love. And with, without that knowledge, what happens is the relationship between you and God becomes, becomes like a relationship between a boss and an employee. I mean, I, if you, if you work in, a, in an office, you might like your boss, you might think your boss is a great guy, but you also know your place in that your place depends on you getting that work done. If you don't get that work done, you're, you're fired. Um, and so you don't really love your boss. You don't work out of love for your boss, unless your boss is your husband or something like that. But you work because <laughs> you work because you have to, right? The the gospel cuts that out totally. So that now um, in Christ, God is your father and he, you're, you're his adopted child. And all the, the payment for the adoption has been given. They can't be revoked. And so, and so, yep. You need to you need to obey the rules in the household, but not because you're afraid that, that your father's going to kick you out on the side and put, put you back in the orphanage, but because he loves you and you love him and you just you just do it because you're his son or his daughter. I love St. Paul's juxtaposition between works of the flesh and fruit of the spirit. Now, we, we do use the word work colloquially, but it seems to me that scripture really wants us to think of these good works as fruit, that once we have been redeemed in Christ and raised again to new life, we actually begin to bloom with the fruit that comes naturally from a renewed heart. And this is what the Lord promised in Isaiah 55, that his word would go out and water the earth and would not come back to him empty, but would indeed accomplish the purposes for which he sent it. And one of those purposes is to bring good fruit out of you, the redeemed sinner. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Matt and, and Nick. And, you know, I'm, I almost think of John uh, three seventeen. you know, where after Jesus gives his great statement about God so loved the world, that he talks about the, the fact that he didn't come to condemn the world because the world was already condemned by unbelief. You know, this is what he, he says, that, that there's, a, there's a, a sense, particularly back with, with Luther's insight into freeing people, is if we can, we can free people uh, by, the, of course, the preaching and teaching and the power of the Spirit to see God as their loving Father. Um, and then even as, a, as someone who's had a loving Father or, or could at least read about one, realizes that, that what a loving Father wants for his son or daughter is in the midst of their trials and temptation and failing to actually be lovingly corrected and restored, not further condemn, not further punished, but actually be, be like the prodigal son, like, you know, re, re reunited to in the family and for, for health and, and safety and, and blessing. And so when you can get someone in a church setting to actually, to, to pray if in that mindset, you know, to genu genuinely, to look inside themselves and say, here are the, here are the four or five things that I really wish were different about my life. You know, like, here's where I'm not patient. I'm not kind. I'm not loving. I'm not faithful. Here's where I'm lacking self-control. Uh, but they pray that in a sense of expectation, resting on the promise that God is not no longer because of his son angry with you, but he's in fact a loving father who's adopted you by his son into his family and wants to give you these things. That's an entirely different way of understanding yourself, God, and then the subsequent works that he's promised to, to fulfill in you than, than one that says that, that hides before God or hides in church or just hides, just doesn't come to church at all because of the very things that we know that we've done and left undone. And so, you know, I think that's the prayer that I have for myself, uh, for certainly for the people in our church is that they can 
they can actually see God through the the risen Christ as the loving father who wants, who doesn't, like a loving father, ignore their sins and transgressions, but like a loving father wants to see them restored and healed and reconciled. And that changes everything. It changes everything. And it and allows for you to 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 hope for good works, to expect good works, to to be grateful where you see them, but to not rely on them at all. Um, because you know that they're they're not in they're not what actually makes you pleasing to God. Because now you've been adopted, not just a son, but an heir, and as an heir, uh, with all the rights and privileges therein. And that's um, that's the beauty of the gospel, which undercuts any idea of earning your salvation by works. Well, that is part five or six, I think, of our 39-part series on the 39 Articles of Religion. And as always, um, they're so chock full of good news and good teaching. We should be in them all the time. We do thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stand Firm. Uh, If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.